Welcome to Semio Bites, bite-sized podlog episodes related to theological semiotics. Shalom, Yoni. Shalom, Terry. Here we are in Semio Bites on September 12th, 2021. Uh, we may get around to talking about the 20th anniversary of uh, 9-11 another time, but that's not the topic today. I stumbled across, it just showed up in my social media feed, an interesting article. And for my video storage, I'm going to bring it up. Uh, and so Yoni and I have agreed to have a conversation around this. So let me share my screen for the benefit of my video ongoing. Um, it should pop up here in a second. All right, I assume you're seeing it, Yoni. Uh, it says Jerry has started to share. There it goes. All right, now it's there. All right. Yeah. Uh, the headline is We Curse Christianity Three Times a Day. Can Jews and Christians Truly Reconcile? And the print's a little small on the subtitle, but it reads The 1965 Vatican Council and subsequent efforts by the church to reconcile with Judaism did not win over Orthodox Jews who believe that their reading of the scriptures is correct, not the Christians. A new book discusses these uneasy relations. So this is a book review. Uh, mm -hmm. I'll give you the details on the book later. And you can see, yeah. if you have the visual, you can see the cartoon of a Catholic priest and two Jewish figures kind of looking scornful or sad. And uh, so that's where we begin. Uh, let me take it out yes. of the chair, but I think uh, Yoni and I will continue to look through it as we talk. And talk about this piece that came from a Jewish paper, Haaretz, right? Haaretz. Haaretz, yes. okay. And you're more familiar... It's actually with two the... words, even though it looks like one word. Okay. You're more familiar, Yoni, than I am with the nature of this uh, source. I did look it up in Media Bias Fact Check, and it's classified as heavily left-leaning, not all the way to the end of the spectrum, but certainly very close to it and yet still very high in factual reporting. So I wanted to know, not being all that, I'm not that much of a consumer of Jewish press. Um, and so I had no idea how reliable the source might be. So I knew Yoni would know. So I suggested we have a conversation around it and here we are. Uh, I'm really just curious as to, does this make any sense from an Orthodox Jewish perspective? Um, so here's the thing with Haaretz, how you summed it up from the media's bias or the media bias. There we go. Media bias. Uh, sounds pretty accurate. They're very left leaning. They'll take some facts and they'll manipulate and twist those facts to suit their political agenda. And so their reporting is not reporting the facts. It's reporting their opinion and they're selective about what they report to support their opinion. And so I think that's an accurate, uh, that's an accurate way to pursue it and look at it. And so the book which i have not read the book itself but i did read this article this book review in depth and i explored it um there's some information in there that is true but manipulated to bring about this perspective this viewpoint and so um when they go through for example when they go through these historical things you're, you're hearing it says oh the vatican council said this and then there's been church efforts to do this okay but there's not a here's the church efforts and so on and so forth and then here's the issue on why it wasn't accepted 
we're, we're not getting the full story. And so if you don't get the full story, you end up with one perspective, one opinion. I think this opinion being expressed here is probably the Catholic opinion of things and perhaps the Christian opinion of things of we've tried to reconcile with the Jews and they reject us. I don't feel that's the full story. Um, my dissertation that I did that was um, actually approved for my doctoral candidacy was it was, a, it was approved by the dissertation committee on February 21st, 2019 for the degree of doctor of ministry in semiotics and future studies. The title of it, Yidbrick, Historical, Practical, Relational, and Theological Concepts and Challenges in Jewish Christian Relations. That I feel that that makes me very well knowledgeable in this category. I would say that you qualify as an authority on this question, yes. <laughs> and I did discuss historical and theological roadblocks in depth in my dissertation. So I actually have my dissertation in front of me. I'm referring to it while we talk about it, but there when I was writing my dissertation, I did come across some things like this, but I didn't find enough to support these statements. I did not find enough actions to defend the words. And, and my, my initial issue, th there's other issues, but this first part right here, saying that Catholicism and Christianity has tried to fix everything and that they have atoned, as one would say, for what's happened in the past and let's move on. It's nice to say it, it's another thing to do it. And the doing hasn't happened, not, not enough. Right, right. For, for example, it's like we, we're talking 2000 years of Jews being killed at the sword in, in the name of Christ. 2000 years of convert or die. I know it didn't happen to just Jews, but it leaves a certain taste in your mouth. One, a little bit of iron, you know, from the blood. And, and, and that taste makes you a little hesitant to say, oh, now you're saying, I'm sorry, let's move on. Well, can I see that you're sorry? And how do I know you're truly sorry? And I understand Christians today are like, well, I didn't do that. So why are you holding against me? And the counterpoint is, tell me what you believe about the Jews and your gospel story. Do you need to convert them? Because they said they needed to convert them too. And so if you have the same theology, this does need to convert. It's hard to say, oh, we're sorry for trying to convert. We may be sorry for trying to kill. Society's moved a little bit beyond that in some scenarios. But if the, if the conversion requirement is still there, it's still problematic. I see. Well, the reason, um, the main thing, again, let me revisit the title. We curse Christianity three times a day. Can Jews and Christians truly reconcile? Given the yes. theme of our podcast and videocast here, um, that term reconcile goes to the very heart of why Yoni and I do what we do in these sessions, because the, the catchphrase, the tagline, the theme at the heart of this series is building bridges of shalom between Jews and Christians. So I think maybe the most helpful thing we could do here is start by unpacking, part us if you like, uh, exegesis, uh, the word reconcile. All right. Um, at, the, at the top level, at the, the Peshat level, if you will, Peshat level, reconcile can be simply taken to mean um, setting aside our differences. 
Yeah. So setting aside our differences sounds easy in theory. Um, I think we've been able to prove that it can be easy in practice if you're willing to shelve your pride. But that seems to be the issue. Well, there is the I versus other. There is the I'm right, you're wrong. Yeah. And and as long as one religion is supersessionist and it believes that it's greater than the other religion, then you subscribe to that theory. It's hard and sometimes impossible to do. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Um, I'm going to part. I'm making. I'm putting a little pin in my thought here that I'll come back to. So if we take it down a level, reconcile can refer to resolving or settling our differences, not just setting them aside, you know, parking them on a shelf as if they didn't exist, but dealing with them in a way where we come to some resolution, some agreement to disagree or something in that flavor, just a level down in the depth of meaning there. I think that's totally possible. And I'd love to see that happen on a wider scale. That's why I do what I do. Okay. Now you mentioned your dissertation. I'll mention mine. <laughs> the in signs, are we getting the message was its title and I'll just let that hang there as a mystery. But in that dissertation, I focused heavily on the notion that we studied with Lynn in terms of the mandorla and the triketra harmony of resonance, resonant harmonies of differences. And I've since begun to think in terms of not just resonant harmony of differences, but also resonant harmonies of similarities. Like when you're singing in the same key, that's a similarity worth respecting. You know, but when you're singing two different keys, the same song, how do you make that work? You know, it can be done, but it's a musical challenge to pull it off. And I would argue that- We do that every week. Say again? We do that every week, but okay. <laughs> But but the reason I like that resonant harmony idea as being kind of the crux of relations in general is I'm asking here at the next level down, beside not looking for resolution or um, equanimity or balance or those ordinary terms where we say let's balance our differences, let's let's find resolution of our differences. For me, the deeper meaning there is really that harmonious resonance. Respect those differences. Honor those differences. Acknowledge them, respect them, honor them, and find a way to fit your other views, despite those differences, into some kind of unity, for lack of a better word, or some kind of resonant harmony is just the best phrase that I've found to kind of deal with that. To me, that's different than setting them aside Resol resolving them or bringing them into some kind of resolution. To me, that resonant harmony idea goes down another level. So I don't know if we've gone from P to P A R to D or not, Pashat, Ramesh, Darash there, but that feels like three different ways at least of looking at the possibility of quote, reconciliation between Jews and Christians, those bridges of Shalom that we're all about here. Yeah. No, I hear you. Um, I want to read something to you. Okay. Say again. Uh, I'm going to read something to you. Oh, and sure. I think this sums up part of the challenge. Sure. Okay. Yeah. The Crusades, the Holocaust, Christ killers. Not only is this the historical message, but the current interpretation for many Jews as well. 
Yad Vashem, the foremost Holocaust museum in the world, displays a map showing the immigration of diaspora Jews to Muslim territories throughout the history, an attempt to avoid and hide from Christian-based governmental structures and maintain a commitment to the eradication of Judaism as a faith and people group. This is the history of the church as a whole against the Jewish people. Even famed modern theologians such as John Piper argue Israel has been replaced by the church and the Jew forgotten. It's a fair to assign holistic guilt to a group. A Western perspective rejects this notion, which is one I am liable to agree with. Part of the challenge that causes cognitive dissonance in this area is that we're not only dealing with a Western world, but also an Eastern mindset, one that relies heavily on history and legacy. So while it may not seem reasonable to many to establish guilt by association, there is nonetheless the issue that the Middle Eastern culture in particular does adhere to this mindset. With the cultural difference in mind, the Christian church must instead change, apologize and make amends with the Jewish people in order to establish long-term effective Jewish-Christian relations. That's one paragraph in my dissertation that starts the conversation. Okay, so if I understood our prior conversation prior to starting the recording, <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a there's a three way constraint around this, right? Around the apology. In order to do teshuva, in order to do repentance, one needs to have a heart condition of repentance. They need to regret what they've done. One needs to have the mind and hand condition. They know what they've done and they are making active efforts to change. And then one needs to have the mouth condition, which is they do apologize for what they've done. To the person that's the concept of Teshuvah. Yes, that's the, that's the concept. So in so, your dissertation, you made the claim that Christians owe Jews an apology for centuries of yes. murder in the name of Christ right so here's so here's it continues maybe this will help should christianity change why must history play the role play a role in the lives of christians today this is the struggle of cultural difference while eastern culture relies on tradition and history to pave the way postmodern western culture abdicates the responsibility of absolute truth and rejects historical attachments this cognitive dissonance is problematic and has to be overcome it is the intent to create is the intent to create guilt to motivate change? Far from it. I mentioned this story of historical Jewish-Christian relations from the perspective of the average Jewish individual to educate and enlighten Christians today about key cultural issues that inhibit the effectiveness of contemporary attempts to move forward. Does Christianity today commit the same crimes of history? Not necessarily. There are two main camps, theological speaking, that connect to soteriological concerns in relation to anti-Semitism. Regardless of this view, however, in order to enable open communications, the cognitive dissonance must be overcome. Western colonialism and individualist identity are at conflict with communal ideology of Eastern traditions. While the Western approach is indifferent to history, referring to the lack of personal involvement in this problem, the Eastern perspective holds the church today accountable for the actions of the past. Much like the war in the Middle East, it's complicated. While the church today is not the church of the past, the past does testify strongly to the Jewish individual of what to expect from the Christian. It's not all doom and gloom, however. Many Christians, especially of late, have accomplished great good in mending relations. 
As a result, more Jewish individuals and organizations are recognizing the changing tide of Christianity and believe positive Jewish Christian relations is a future reality. Two issues are at hand when dealing with Christian anti-Semitism is one, the lack of understanding or ignorance of actions that are anti-Semitic, usually in relation to Christian supersessionism, and two, the disconnect of historical impact and responsibility. So while there is this difference, the problem remains we have to address this difference in order to move forward. Well, it's interesting. Uh, I, as you were reading through that, it occurred to me that this is a separate consideration, but it's in the same category as what manifests destiny, white supremacy, racism, misogyny, materialism did to the indigenous peoples of the world in the North American hemisphere, right? North and South hemisphere in the name of the church, in the name of the yeah. same Jesus. And they're, they're, the American culture is absolutely refusing to confess, much less repent of having done that. You know, it's just a done deed. We don't even think about it anymore. Doesn't matter, it's in the past. And I have a feeling that the same kind of hubris is at work, at least to put it kindly, it's a kind of hubris. It's more like, well, the indigenous peoples had a word for it, Wetiko. And mm -hmm. it, it was literally a disease that was cannibalistic. And they had observed it within their own tribes and peoples and they, my information is suspected as soon as those Columbus ships sailed over the horizon in their direction, they knew exactly what they were facing. <laughs> what they yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so, like I say, the kind way to look at it is, is just a kind of cultural or ideological or nationalistic hubris. But really stripped of that window dressing, it's just murderous cannibalism. At best, yeah. it's genocide and ethnocide. You know, and I don't bring that up to say that that diminishes the claims at all that you made in your dissertation. Anything it just says not only was it this bad in terms of the way the Middle East was treated, it's this bad the way it was treated here on this continent. So there's this yes. Western Europe manifest destiny that's really kind of I think the the 19th and 20th century manifestation of that 2,000 year old. Western European crusades and so on. It's just the same disease spread in different directions. Yeah, so I, I guess at this point, I do wanna be clear to the listener. I'm not condemning Christianity. I may be an ex-Christian, but I'm not condemning Christianity. I believe that roads of Shalom are possible. And that's why I actively work to make these and forge these bridges of peace. I, I see the ability to do this i'm just trying to educate based off my own experience and my own learning process why this is so complicated and it's it's not that christianity needs to be condemned and i'm an orthodox jew saying this so i do take offense that this organization saying orthodox jews curse christianity a few times a day which we will have to get into that exact statement because i understand I, I know where they're trying to cite that, and I feel that that's a misreading of the text. But there is, a, it's just complicated. And so to say, oh, well, we made this letter and we've said these things, I hear you. I understand that. I understand that you don't want to associate yourself with the Christianity of the past 
Catholic or Protestant, and that today is different than then. I understand that. I hear that. The challenge is you're dealing with a culture that relies on legacy. And the legacy of Christianity is not so shiny. And it's passed down. And we have an oral tradition that's passed down. And so when you have insular societies that they're passed down stories from their predecessors, for example, a lot of Orthodox Jews today are terrified of dogs. I have a dog. I have a little dog. It's a King Charles Cavalier, the precious moments puppy. That thing is, it couldn't hurt a fly. There are people, grown men in my community, they're afraid of it. Why is that? Because they were taught the fear of dogs by their parents, by their grandparents, because dogs were used in the camps, because dogs were used in the crusade, because dogs were used as an enforcement tool throughout history. And so they've developed a fear of dogs. They just don't have another lens to explore and look at this. Right. Once we weaponized the canines, that became a stigma. Yeah. And that's what it is. There's a stigma of Christianity on the Jews' mouth yeah. because of what we know through history. It's not because we hate Christianity and we want to curse it. There are many great rabbis that have said Christianity is an amazing thing and it was necessary to bring the world to the level of morality where it is today. Because before Christianity, it was the Colosseums and it was a free-for-all and Christianity instituted the concept of courts and systems and laws in the secular world and in the non-Jewish world. And so Christianity has done many good things throughout history, but we don't discount that. There's just what Christianity has done to the Jews makes the Jews want to say, ah, <laughs> understandably. Uh, so, okay, you mentioned that you wanted to dig into the three times a day we curse Christianity. So let's shift that, to that focus. Can you do the screen share so that we have yeah. that up? Yeah, it's still up. Okay. Okay, I just can't see it on my end. Yeah. It's coming. Okay. Do you want me to go down into the article? Um, well, let, let's scroll down. I, I just want to quickly highlight a few things with this okay so first off that image right there yeah um we have the image of the pope who looks very sad in the cross of him, and he's just sad because he's tried to reach out to his jewish brethren they have the picture of the stereotypical orthodox rabbi he's wearing the black jacket the white shirt he has a giant darker colored nose an angry face glaring and walking off they have a picture of another jew who is the Israeli Zionist Jew because of the type of kippah that he wears and his white shirt and carrying a book. And he just looks sad about the whole situation, which one summarizes, Haar, summarizes Haaretz, which is very um, Zionistic in nature. And it feels that the problem is the Orthodox. But two, quite frankly, this is an anti-Semitic image. This is okay. using its stereotypical tropes about Christians and Jews, which is problematic. Uh, we, we have the big nose thing, we have the angry face thing, and the snubbing Christians who are always forgiving, yet history doesn't necessarily show that. So I just want to highlight, we already have a media bias here that is giving us significant problems with understanding the text. I think that's a valid semiotic reading, just to the visuals, yeah. Valid, very much okay. so. So let's take a look here, if we scroll down here. 
All right. If you can make the font a little bigger for me, I'd appreciate that. Sure, hang on. Is that better? Thank you. Yeah, okay. So in the very beginning here, we have the whole story of Esau and Yaakov, or Esau and, yeah, Esau and Yaakov, right? Jacob, right? Yep. So Esau and Yaakov, what's going on here? They meet, it says Esau rushes to, to Yaakov, embraces and falls on his neck, kisses him, and the two burst into tears. What a thrilling reconciliation. But the Jewish sages were not enamored with this. And it says in the Midrash, they say this instead. I have an issue with how this is phrased. This is suggesting that the Jewish sages decided they didn't like it and that they changed the narrative. But the Midrash does not change the narrative of the text. It explains the narrative of the text what we have within Judaism is we have this concept of an oral Torah and a written Torah. Both were given to Moshe on Mount Sinai. The oral Torah was eventually codified into the Mishnah, which became the Talmud or the Gemara. And the written Torah is what you know as the five books of Moses. Okay. Both have the status of Torah within Orthodox Judaism. Outside of Orthodox Judaism, some reject the concept of oral Torah which gets problematic because if you read oral Torah, all it does is explain how to do the written Torah. We have things in written Torah that says, do this, and it leaves no instructions whatsoever. And then we have things that says, follow my Torahs. The Torah is teaching, Torah, plural is teachings. Why does it say Torahs? Because there's, there's two sets given the oral to explain the written. And so now the, the Talmud we have today is very limited in the fact that they recorded what they had to record in order that wasn't lost. But Rabbi Akiva, who is one of the people who helped transmit the information, he had 24,000 students. And those 24,000 students died from a plague, all but four of them. Those four of them gave us the entire Talmud that we know today. So imagine how much we don't have that yeah. we've lost. Like so I'm not to say, <laughs> yeah, I'm not to say the Talmud is not reliable. It is reliable. And we do accept it as Torah. I'm just saying there's so much, there's so much fine tuning that we don't have today that we used to have. And so when we read it, maybe we don't have a complete understanding. Maybe we, we're missing some other components, but that's besides the point. Right here, we're referring to the, the Midrash. The Midrash explains complicated things that don't make sense, right? Why did Yaakov avoid Esau? Okay, so we have that issue. And then when, when they embraced, what did Yaakov do? He immediately fled. He went to neighboring town, didn't follow him back. And he stayed in that neighboring town for a long time. He avoided Esau afterwards too, out of the same fear of death. So the question is, he has a fear of death from Esau. He sees Esau and he still has a fear of death from Esau. So how could they embrace in this wonderful reconciliation and make things good? That says there's an issue here. And that's what the Midrash is trying to identify is that the text itself, the words that are used have a multi-meaning. There may have been an attempt at reconciliation, but Esau is Esau and Yaakov is Yaakov. And the two are not always compatible with each other. And we have that struggle. It was a curse from the womb. And so to say, ah, well, the sages didn't like it. So they pretended this and they claimed this instead. I have issues with that phrasing. That, sh that shows that this is a, it has its own bias. I see, yes, I see that. So, and we do associate Esau with Rome. Mm. But and so I understand that. Telling, this story that they're telling about 
it wasn't really a kiss. It was more of a bite. And the yeah. miracle occurred. Jacob's neck hardened and prevented from doing damage. And mm -hmm. one cried for his neck while the other cried for his teeth, etc. Is that propagandistic propaganda? No, I'd say that that is what the Mishrash does say. Ah, okay. All right. I, I'm saying that one, they're, they're trying to say this is not amusing and that they rejected this. And here's the part that I have. it says for the stages of the rabbinic period, Esau was a metonym for Roman afterwards for Christianity. That's saying the Midrash was written during Roman occupation. The Midrash was known before them because it was events that happened that were transmitted down until they were able to be codified. I see. Okay. All right. So it's it's like me saying that, oh, well, you know, the apostles and Yeshua's resurrection, all that, that didn't happen until 70 common era because that's when the first one was written down. Your response was like, well, no, because it says it happened in the 30s. Mm -hmm. 33, well, I'm yeah. saying, well, no, you didn't write it till 70, so it didn't exist till then. Right, right. How can I accept your oral transmission this happens? You should have written it down immediately. <laughs> The world's different than today. We we don't have we didn't have social media then. We didn't have the immediate access to these things, and there wasn't the thought that we need to write things down until there was a risk of losing it. Well, it's interesting. I mean, that's I don't want to make too much of the point, but the Romans were fairly meticulous record keepers of life and death, especially the criminal yep. elements and what they identified as the criminal elements. Unfortunately, we have we have lost a lot of those records. Go figure, in the fall of the Roman Empire. Um, so, I guess I, the only thing that's kind of percolating in my thinking around this is, it's a shame. Kind of like you lost so much, as you were talking about just a moment ago. So much was lost around the original uh, Torah, that uh, it's a shame. It, it, you can't be sure that you have from just those four one thing you can be sure of is having only those four you lost a lot <laughs> you know well, yeah it makes it difficult to proceed without benefit of that additional commentary or information that's um, why historically every year during those 33 days the students passed we have a status of mourning because of how much Torah we lost right right that makes good sense it really does Anything else in this article you want to kind of unpack? Oh, we can go down a little bit. But I want to, I'm trying to highlight some of the key things that are manipulating the narrative here is what's okay. going on. Okay. And so we have, we have the idea that this new book's coming out by a historian that addresses this. Okay. So this new book's coming out that addresses this. And this is a book review about this book. Right. Okay. Uh, historian Karma Ben Johanan, titled Reconciliation and Its Discontents unresolved tensions in Jewish-Christian relations. Deals Which there the are unresolved tensions. Yeah, deals with the reciprocal conceptions of Catholics and Orthodox Jews in the era of reconciliation since that 1965 uh, session. So, I mean, this this paragraph I feel is very fact-based. It's not the not manipulative. I, I like this, this last sentence in that paragraph. In the second section, the book discusses the chilly responses of Orthodox Judaism, including the suspicions aroused by the Christians' eagerness to turn a new leaf and the rabbis concerned over the possibility of excessive closeness. Those are fair concerns, given the past. Yes. I mean, 
we, we, we like to see somebody's change before we, there's this concept, right? If, if you have to forgive somebody for what they've done, it doesn't mean that you have to forget and open yourself up to being harmed. You're right. Close and that, to that's the problem. <laughs> yeah. And so we, we don't, we have the obligation to not, it says if someone comes to murder, you wake up before them and kill them first. That's a Torah law we have. And because you're not allowed to allow yourself to be murdered. And you're not allowed to put yourself in a position of suffering. And so the, the application I have for this is, okay, the church says they want to change and that they're sorry. We hear you. Can, can we see some of this before we get too close? We don't want to put ourselves within reach of the dagger. Well, again, we, we have some bad point. experiences. It, it goes back to your point about not just ignoring history and the legacy yes. that it carries. You know, I mean, in yes. light of that history and the legacy it carries, you're asking a culture that just it's done deed, forget it, right? That's that's yeah. kind of the tension, the point of tension here between the the legacy history focus of the Jews and the, we don't want to talk about it from the Christians. I mean, if Christians yeah. had to, it, it is, and I say this as a Christian, I am a follower of Christ. I'm the, most of the listeners who call themselves Christians probably don't buy that, but be that as it may, I just, I can't look at history of the Western world, Western civilization dating back to Rome and just pretend <laughs> that the bloodbath of genocide and ecocide and ethnocide that's taken place in the name of Jesus, I can't just pretend that didn't happen. Uh, you know, it's yeah. just not rational to do that, much less empathetic. Yeah. No, I hear that. Um, I definitely do hear that. So if I can give an example, we and the Jewish community at large, in particular our community, we still struggle with undercover missionaries. Undercover from Protestants, yeah, from 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 the Protestants, from the Catholics, from the Messianics. These people pretend that they're Jews, and they infiltrate the community, and then they try to do chance encounters of the gospel in the parks and whatnot, and try to convert people. It gives a bad taste. That's evidence that maybe the church hasn't moved on. Right. They've changed the tools they're using. It's no longer the sword in a physical means, but it's still saying it, it, it's it's not. It's a backhanded apology. We're sorry we tried to convert you, or we're sorry we killed you, but you should have converted. Mm, yeah, it's that same brutal message delivered with a velvet glove, if you will. And so I guess that's that's one thing I do highlight in my dissertation is that. In order for there to be Jewish Christian relations that has a true respect of each other, we have to drop the whole, I need to convert the Jews thing. Theologically, that's why there's two groups now. There is the uh, covenant theology, which is a bit more respectful of that. Uh, Dr. Len Sweet does teach that, that the Jews have their own covenant. So if, if you have a, a major theologian who's published multiple books in the Christian world that comes out and says, the Jews have their own covenant, leave them alone. Obviously that's a valid perspective that can be embraced. It's just not being taken that way. N.T. Wright even argued for a covenant theology. So it's, it's accepted by a lot of major theologians within the Christian world that the Jews have their own covenant 
They don't need to convert to Christianity. And so if the church as a whole, and if the people that attend the church would say, I don't need to convert the Jews because they have a relationship with God from the Jewish end, we may not agree with your theology, but that's something we can work with because you're not trying to convert us. Yeah. We can have peace if we feel safe. Yes, yes. And if we would just let you rebuild the temple. <laughs> that's a different story. That's that's more complicated. And we, you got to have more people on board with that, including the Muslims. I know, I know. Well, uh, we are kind of closing down. Unless you have some final comment you want to kind of put in there, I'll wrap us up. I want to address the headline. Okay. Okay. All right. I want to address the headline and give you one final combo of that. Okay. So I'm going to read you something here. We call it Elenu. All right. Elenu, because that's the first word. We call it Elenu. I'm going to read the, yeah, that's, that's Hebrew. I'm going to read the English to you. Okay. It's our obligation to praise the master of all, describe greatness to the creator of the world in the beginning. He has not made us like the nations of the lands. He has not positioned us like the families of the earth. He has not assigned our portion like theirs, nor a lot like that of their multitudes. For they prostrate themselves to vanity and nothingness, and they pray to a God that can't deliver. But we bow, prostrate ourselves, and offer thanks before the supreme king of kings, the holy one blesses he, who spreads the heavens, establishes the earth, and the seat of his glory from heaven above, and the abode of his invincible might in the loftiest heights. He is our God, there is nothing else. Our king is true, all else is insignificant. It's written in the Torah. You shall know this day and take in your heart that Hashem is God in the kingdom and the heavens above and on the earth below, there is nothing else. Therefore, we put our hope in you, Hashem, our God, to soon behold the glory of your might and banishing idolatry from the earth. And it goes on to talk about when Mashiach comes, right? And the rebuilding. This is considered a central component of the Jewish faith that takes these principles and it boils them down into this poem called Elenio. That article is referring to this poem. Really? We say this poem at the end of our prayers three times a day. And how is that taken to be a curse for Christians? That's my question. Now, one of our concepts is that when Mashiach comes and the temple is rebuilt, that the whole world will see God's king and they'll abandon their idolatry and they'll just serve God. They'll just what? They'll just serve God. Oh, okay. This poem was written at a time when there's a lot of idolatry, legit idolatry in the world, right? It was written during a time of extreme persecution and criticism. And so to say, oh, this poem is cursing Christianity, I think is lacking context and lacking awareness. If some tries to take an, an aggressive approach to this, they may say, oh, this is, how, how dare they say that Christianity is not the path? Because you know what? For, for Jews, Christianity is not the path. But Rabbi Arya Kaplan says, for Christians, why is Christianity not the path? If they believe there's one God and they have a moral system, what, what's the issue here? We're not talking about Jews. For Jews, we can't accept that the Christian God is our God. But for the rest of the world, why not? It's teaching monotheism. It's teaching ethical life. Right. I have a hard time saying Elenu is bashing Christians and cursing Christians. I'm, I read it saying, as Jews, we serve this God, and we know that everybody will serve this God eventually. 
it's not a curse. It is simply reciting passages that is in, it, it's a poem summarizing our halakha and our understanding of the world to come. It's not a curse. And so that's that's where I take issue with the first thing that was said, right? Yeah, yeah I see. At the end of my dissertation, I do give, here's how we can move forward, okay? And I address it for a Jewish audience and for a Christian audience, right? For the Jewish audience, I do say, I recommend, the primary recommendation I make for the Jewish audience is to move forward. While much of Judaism is steeped in a rich Masorah tradition that keeps faith alive, anti-Christian biases have also been brought into contemporary society. And so I say, while at the time of writing several texts, such as the Shulchan Aruch, as well as the Talmud Bavli, many other works, non-Jews were primary idolaters. They, they, they worshipped many gods. They worshipped statues. In contemporary society, the average non-Jew is not an idolater. While there are idolatrous religions still in existence, such as Buddhism, most individuals today, both secular and religious, don't worship idols. The days of Baal and Dagon are gone, and the world today follows the laws of science over the laws of religion. If we, the Jewish people, continue to look at non-Jews, or Christians in particular, as idolaters, we'll never be able to bridge relations. Additionally, while Christianity has a history of anti-Semitism, this history cannot and should not be used to label Christians today as anti-Semitic. Yes, some Christians may very well be anti-Semitic, as addressed in the beginning of the dissertation, but a categorical labeling is no different than type of labelizing and generalizing, assuming all anti-Semitic individuals do regarding Jews. And then for the Christian, I, I do say we do there does need to be the effort to step forward. There does need to be the effort to address the issues. The optics is a primary challenge. While it's not fair to hold optics and history against Christian and Christians today, the reality is these assumptions do exist and need to be overcome. And so the first step is to stop Jewish evangelism. And then we can go from there. And so I, I guess for me, saying this article. I haven't read the book, but this book review, this article, it's an unfair perspective. As long as there is Jewish evangelism today and that attempt to convert Jews, whether overtly or discreetly, we're not going to reach the point of worldwide Jewish-Christian relations that we want to reach. And Jews want that just as bad as Christians. We we want peace. Our Our, our greeting begins and ends with the same word shalom, which means peace. That is the essence of our religion. We want peace, including with Christians. And we want to live peacefully together. And we have an obligation to make the world a better place. And we can accomplish so much more if we do that together. Right. It is incumbent upon all of us to recognize that. Orthodox Jews are willing to seek peace with Christians. But we have to stop the evangelism. And the way to stop the evangelism is to stop this supersessionism and to accept this idea of a dual covenant. Right. Jews don't have to believe that. But for Christians to stop evangelism, I feel that might be a necessary step. The dual covenant? Yes. Yeah, acknowledging it. Acknowledging, leave the Jews their God and their practice, and we will leave you your God and your practice. Right, right, right. Well, I've, this has thoroughly been an enjoyable conversation, and I'm going to wrap it up with a couple of things here. Um, first, I want to assure our listeners and viewers that I have never tried to convert Yoni. <laughs> it's true. And that's, I think that's a fair statement. And Jews in general don't try to convert Christians. I mean, so we're actually they, against conversion. Yeah. So that's pretty much off the books. And I will take to heart 
the responsibility that I, as a privileged white manifest destiny, Watiko, North American, U.S. American privileged person, definitely owe from the heart an apology to you as a Jew, Yoni, and to the Jewish people for what has been done in the name of Christ throughout history. Uh, and that's a sincere apology. And I hope that the fact that I'm here as a Christian doing this is evidence of that sincerity, as far as you and I are concerned, at least. Yes, it is. Um, Thank you. And I, I guess what's weighing on me as a further way to prove out that sincerity is to take to heart a fuller understanding of the Noahide laws that I think, as you and I have discussed previously, is kind of a good common ground where Christians could start to bring our differences into a harmonious resonance. Because the, the ethics of Christianity, I think, is very closely, if not entirely, common ground there in those laws. This is why I need to study them. Uh, just to, and, and you've pointed out to me there are seven, right, of them. Yeah. At, the, at the summary level, at the top they level, break yeah. down. They break down into more specific or detailed or precise acts or ways of thinking and being and doing that need to be taken seriously by Christians who are interested in building these kind of shalom bridges. Is that a fair statement? I don't think one needs to break it down necessarily into. You can go up to two hundred. There's there's different opinions. I, I think looking at the seven top level is the basic starting point. And there are rabbis who, it's widely accepted opinions by these rabbis, uh, whether or not the whole world accepts it, but these rabbis do, that Christianity and its modern practice, depending on how one approaches their Christianity, it may very well be already no high. So that's not the issue. The, the issue is the Jewish evangelism. The issue is when a church says you're sorry, and then tries to do secret missions to convert Jews. Right, right. Well, I certainly, as limited as my understanding of it is, two things I want to say in closing here. One, I certainly um, respect the dual covenant perspective. And there's nothing I'd like to see more in this context or in this regard than the rebuilding of the temple. Um, on a more personal level, I want our viewers to understand something about you, Yoni. You, how long has it been since you and Tasha and your kids walked out of your Christian history and into a Jewish Orthodox life? Um, Jewish Orthodox community, we're working on our fifth year here, fifth year being here. All right, so that goes back to 2016, your second year and my second year in the doctoral cohort, right? Yeah, so I started the process during the second half of the first year in the program as a result of the program. Okay, so what I want our visitors, the Christians especially, who are probably the minority, but the Christians who are listening to or watching when I get around to putting them up as videos, uh, this Simeo Bites work, I would, I would just want you to understand that it must be obvious, as it is to me, it must be obvious to the rest of you, that Yoni has gotten his head and heart and soul and mind wrapped around being an observant Orthodox Jew 
to a level of depth that is simply astonishing to have been accomplished in five years. I mean, your mastery of the language alone is is just something to behold. And well, I have a lot to work on Hebrew, but I can understand. <laughs> <laughs> but the depth with which you've taken on the disciplines of observance and the disciplines of study and the disciplines, well, not just the disciplines, but the skills and the crafts and the creative use of them. I, I just want to salute you for that because it's something that I take for granted. <laughs> and I don't, want our, I don't want our viewers to, because especially if they're not Jewish, if they are Christian or just curious, we may have, you know, the just curious seekers out there. Um, I just, it's important, I think, that they understand that you haven't been this way all your life. This is no, a I'm, I'm not from from birth. Excuse yeah. me. I, that's, I'm not from from birth. Somebody who grows up in it. Right, and and to have walked away from the Pentecostal evangelical charismatic side of the Christian world into this world, I mean, I was just dumbstruck when I when I saw that happen. And now every time we get together in one of these episodes, I always think. The, the Jonathan I knew and the Yoni that I know today. And I just marvel at how we got to where we are from there. It's really impressive. Yeah. I, just, I just wanted to share that with you. Thank you. It's been a lot of hard work. I'm sure. <laughs> okay, then. That wraps us up for this episode. Okay. And... If anybody has any questions or wants to engage us in this dialogue, please reach out to us. We'd love to discuss it. Absolutely. I'm tired of being the only Christian voice in this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> well i seem to be the only jewish voice in this conversation too so well, you know yeah that's true we'll hang in there and just just keep inviting and surely yes. sure. well we have had lynn he's joined us in one interview that we posted right yeah all right johnny shalom brother okay. shalom send questions comments and suggestions to semiobytes at gmail.com Semiobytes is a podcast co-hosted by Yedbrook and Semiocity that answers Semitic questions via Semioc analysis by addressing misunderstandings to build a bridge of shalom between Judaism and Christianity. Semiobytes is a component of the Track 2 dissertation process at Portland Seminary for Jonathan Esterman and Terry Rankin.